Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 18, The Discovery of Metals. We are now going to enter the Chalcolithic period. Chalcolithic is made up from the Greek words chalkos, which means copper, and lithic, which means stone. We could also call this the Copper Age. We do have a duty, however, to try to keep the technicalities of this podcast simple, and the simplest method for ageing history would be to say that human history started with the Stone Age, before making way for the Bronze Age, and then for the Iron Age. So where does the Copper Age fit into this? Traditionally, we consider the Chalcolithic to be part of the Stone Age, even though there is clearly a beginning for the practical use of metal. Roughly, we consider this age to cover the period from the earliest evidence of copper smelting from around 5000 BCE. During the previous podcasts, we have discovered some of the human developments which took place during the preceding Neolithic period, which we can say started around 10,000 BCE. We have seen that human tribes have become increasingly sedentary due to their reliance on agricultural methods to guarantee their food supplies. And in becoming more sedentary, they began to construct permanent dwellings. Tribes would join these clusters of dwellings to increase the size of the village. And in the case of the site of Chatelhuyuk in southern Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, the population could have been as high as 8,000 people. Metalworking was not a new thing when copper smelting emerged after 5000 BCE. In fact, Stone Age humans would have chanced across copper in places that have long since been mined by future generations. In order to find naturally occurring copper though, you have to be in the right area of the world for copper to have been naturally produced. And being a solid metal, it had to be produced by a significant natural event. An example of this would be tectonic plate collisions. The only real reference to tectonic plate collisions that we have made during this podcast series was way back in episode 1. In that episode we went right back to 66 million years ago. Back then we discovered that the subcontinent of India was actually a large island in today's Indian Ocean that had not yet linked to the Asian landmass that it is a part of today. 
We explained how India eventually collided with the Asian landmass and that the Himalayan mountains were dramatically created by the collision, forcing the Earth's lands upwards in an impossible battle of land versus land. Such is the dramatic nature of this collision that elements are forced together by high amounts of pressure and this is basically the kind of conditions that will create comparatively complex elements such as copper. It is difficult to know when humans started finding and becoming fascinated by copper. As a naturally occurring substance, you would believe that most species of humans would have had occasion to stumble across it, pick it up and play around with it. Chayanu Tepesi Chayanu Tepesi is an archaeological site in the east of modern Turkey. This is also an area of the world where obsidian is believed to have been naturally available. It is local to the Taurus mountain range. These mountains would have been created by the pressures of the African and Arabian tectonic plates coming into conflict with the Eurasian tectonic plate, giving us the opportunity to see the potential creation of complex elements such as metal and in particular at this location, copper. The site at Chayunu Tepesi was possibly occupied around 10,000 BCE by people living in round huts made using the wattle and daub technique of creating a framework made from spindly wood and packing it out using earth. However, moving up the excavation layers and thus exploring more modern periods, we can establish that over the course of the next 3,000 years, the building works became more sturdy and complex. We know that obsidian was in use in the same way that stone was in use at Cheonu Tepesi for the construction of flake tools. However, at around 8000 BCE, we can find copper artefacts. These copper artefacts were not smelted, but they are actually naturally occurring copper ores that have been hammered into shape. Some have been turned into beads for jewellery, which is not surprising if the copper ore is deemed to be an attractive object. Another object found at the site made from copper ore is a 3 centimeter long awl, which may have been used as a weaving tool or for creating holes in materials. Copper. It is important that we point out at this stage that we are talking about copper ores at this point. So they are actually lumps of mineral that contain copper rather than the brown orange metal that we often instantly recognise as the pure copper that we see today. The natural copper within the ore can make the mineral rock 
surprisingly look a green or turquoise colour. So this could be different to our expectations if we've never seen it before. You can particularly see this green colour in malachite, which is a kind of copper carbonate that is also believed to have existed at the site. Copper ores were originally being cold hammered. So the copper ore was being discovered and then effectively hammered into a desired shape. Copper ores were well built for cold hammering and would accept the hammer with much less chance of breaking up, as would have been the case with stone and obsidian. So it would have been useful for creating long-lasting crude axes. Native copper is a name we give to these copper ores to distinguish them from pure copper, which humans were still to figure out how to produce. They were discovering from quite an early time, however, that they could work the native copper a lot better if it was heated. Heated native copper was less likely to break due to its brittle qualities while cold. The process of working a heated piece of metallic material and allowing it to cool down to its reworked shape is called annealing. It would have been through the close contact of native copper and sources of heat that humans would have likely discovered pure copper. Pure copper is extracted from native copper ores by the act of smelting, which involves heating the ore to a very high temperature to separate the copper from the rest of the minerals in the ore. Humans would have had to have taken the time to observe and experiment with the heating of native copper to be able to perfect this skill, but it is likely that they discovered this by accident while annealing native copper. Humans would have likely understood through observation and experimentation that the act of smelting very much depended on the heat of the fire. With copper having a boiling point of over a thousand degrees Celsius, the fire would have to be considerably hot. Humans understood that you could generate higher temperatures by enclosing the fire while still enabling air to access the furnace or the crucible. Humans would have had to have gone to such measures to effectively smelt copper in significant quantities. But what would they have done with the smelted copper afterwards? Tell Seth. Teld Saf is an archaeological site in the Jordan Valley of modern Israel which may hold some clues about the progress of society around 5000 BCE. Teld Saf is a very important site in terms of demonstrating how agricultural societies were changing. With the emergence of agriculture, we can also see the emergence of agricultural tools, which is something we have not yet discussed. Humans 
were manufacturing composite tools for cultivating and harvesting crops. These tools would have been digging tools such as adzes and cutting tools such as sickles. They would often be made from flint stones that were hafted onto a wooden handle. Such was the expertise of humans in agriculture that we began to yield more crops than we needed and recent evidence recovered at Tel Tsaf seems to suggest that this was the case and that we reacted in rather a surprising way. The remnants of what can be described as brick-built silos were believed to have been identified at the site and were believed to have been deliberately constructed in the courtyards of another building. Pottery sherds discovered at the site seems to suggest that residents were creating ceramic grain storage vessels that were unlike the traditional pots that we are used to discovering from this period. The vessel appears to be dome-shaped with no opening at the top. Instead, there were small windows in which grain could be posted into the vessel. The vessel itself was decorated with ball-shaped lumps on the top. A very strange discovery indeed. One of the explanations offered for this vessel is that it served a ritualistic purpose, possibly a means to preserve the grain that the earth had kindly given to the residents of Tel Tsaf. Could the residents of Tel Tsaf have honestly thought that by saving grain in a specially constructed vessel that it would please the gods of the earth enough to provide more successful harvests for future seasons? Way over in the Balkans, a deep shaft has been discovered at Rudnaglava in modern-day Serbia, which is believed to have been created for the purpose of mining copper ore. Some nicely made pots were found in the mine, and once again it has been put forward that the pots were filled with produce and placed in the mine to respect the yield of copper ore that the earth was kindly supplying to the miners. This could be far-fetched, but such is the strangeness of ritual behaviour, it is important for us to discuss these abstract connections, as ritual behaviour is very much a part of anthropology and needs to be discussed as a possibility when connecting all of these seemingly unnecessary creations and behaviours. Another discovery at Tel Saf is that of a copper awl found at the burial site of a 40-year-old woman. The woman was wearing a belt containing over 1,500 ostrich eggshell beads. The creation of such a belt would have been a significant act which must have taken a lot of time and effort to produce. She must have been very important to somebody at Tel Tsaf, if not to everybody. As for the copper oil itself, it is likely to have been brought 
to tell Seth either as copper or as an all by nomadic traders. And this is supportable by the widespread dispersal of obsidian and malachite, which reached areas where it was not a natural resource, something that we have discussed previously. We can also see the dispersal of basalt, which is an igneous rock created by solidified lava or magma. Copper is dispersed throughout the Fertile Crescent in the same manner, suggesting a trade network was very likely in place. Other metals. We mentioned that copper mining was taking place at sites in modern day Serbia, in the Balkans of Europe. We also know that copper mining was taking place elsewhere, and an example of this exists near the modern city of Varna, which sits on the coast of the Black Sea in modern day Bulgaria. Varna is the site of what has been called a necropolis. The word necropolis is derived from Greek. Necros means dead and polis means city. So we are actually talking about an ancient burial site. The Varna necropolis is believed to date back to 4500 BCE. But the significance of the site is that not only does it contain copper artefacts, but that it also contains gold artefacts. We suggested that copper is found in locations where tectonic activity creates enough pressure to provide the circumstance by which copper can be formed. With gold, you need considerably more pressure than two humble tectonic plates can create. In fact, no natural activity of the earth alone is capable of producing gold. To form gold, pressures totally alien to us had to have taken place. One theory of where the kind of pressures exist that can create gold is when a star goes supernova. So we really are in the extreme realms of astrophysics here. I don't want to dig too deeply into the exciting world of astrophysics. That should be the job of a completely different podcast. However, just to give you a sense of how precious gold truly is, our own sun, the star in the centre of our solar system, is not believed to be big enough to become a supernova. Stars bigger than the sun are the ones that have the energy to go supernova when their lives are coming towards its end. And this is where the pressure exists to be able to create the circumstances by which gold can be created. It is believed that the gold that can be found on planet Earth are the debris of a large star's death and can therefore be found on all of the inhabited land masses of the planet. 
At the archaeological site of Tel Unatsite, which is in the Pazadzik province of modern-day Bulgaria, some 200 miles southeast of Varna, a tiny gold bead claimed to be the earliest gold artefact was discovered. The bead is believed to be the same age as the Varna necropolis, 4,500 BCE. And the site of Tel Unatsite is believed to be among the first villages of Europe. The melting point of gold is similar to the melting point of copper, so it is believed that those humans that could successfully produce temperatures that could smelt even the toughest copper ores could melt gold. And this would have been perfect for those humans who had started making casts in which liquid metal could be poured to make solid metal objects. The big difference between gold and copper is that gold is more malleable, which makes it more suitable and attractive for the creation of decorative items, whereas copper was far more practical and available for the creation of everyday use objects such as axes. If we go back to the Varna necropolis, a place where almost 300 graves have been found, we can see an astonishing amount of gold buried with and among the dead. Decorative gold jewellery such as beads, necklaces and bracelets were discovered. In one of the graves, a man was found to be buried with a golden sceptre and even a golden penis sheath. This man must have had some high standing among his contemporaries. If we travel to the archaeological site of Metsamor in modern-day Armenia, we can find evidence of what has been interpreted to possibly be one of the world's first metal foundries, a place where metals are worked to become other objects such as jewellery or tools. Claims have been made that the site at Metsamor could have been occupied as long ago as 7000 BCE and at its height may have been the home of 50,000 people. Quite a claim. Initial metal processing at Metzamor may date back as early as 5000 BCE. Certainly copper was in use here but over time it is believed that gold, lead, Tin, zinc and even iron was processed here over the course of the following two to three thousand years. The Bronze Age The Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Neolithic and Chalcolithic periods were all part of the Stone Age. The Stone Age made way for the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age is generally considered to be at the beginning of the ancient societies. The ancient societies are going to be the focus of volume two of this podcast. 
However, this is still volume one, which is looking at the prehistoric world. So why are we talking about the Bronze Age? Well, the first evidence of bronze creation is to be found long before the Bronze Age is considered to be in effect. The Bronze Age really defines a period in history where bronze became widespread. Bronze itself is not a pure metal. The metals that we have mentioned so far are pure elements. Elements are substances that cannot be interconverted and by that we mean that on their own they cannot be changed into something else. Bronze on the other hand is made up of two purer elements, notably copper and commonly alloyed with tin. This produces a mixture of metals which combine to create a harder metal which would be more durable than copper alone. However, we shouldn't put a date on the first metal alloys. Copper and tin ores can be found in close proximity to each other in certain areas of the world, so it would be quite perceivable for there to have been accidental bronze production where tin ores were accidentally smelted alongside copper ores. Cambridge University in the UK publishes a journal called Antiquity and in 2013 an article was published that announced the discovery of tin bronzes at an archaeological site called Plotchnik, named after the local village in the Toplica district of modern Serbia. These tin bronzes are dated to around 4,000 500 BCE but it is not clear how deliberately they were created and whether they were being created for aesthetic or practical purposes. In other words the alloys may have been created to the desire of a particular colour rather than the strength of the alloy. The, the lost, lost wax, wax process in 1961, the Polish-born Israeli archaeologist Pesar Bar-Adon stumbled across a hoard of Chalcolithic artefacts at a site called Nahal Mishmar. There were over 400 objects in this hoard, mostly made from copper. The objects were dated to 3500 BCE and were made using the lost wax technique. This involves the creation of a wax model of the object that you want ultimately to be made from metal. It is likely that a clay material was packed around the wax object. The clay would have been heated up causing the molten wax to drain out of the clay and this would have left a baked clay object with a void resembling the shape of the wax object. Pour in your molten metal, allow the metal to harden, break off the clay from around the solidified metal and there you have a metal object of the desired shape. That is a very simple explanation of the lost wax process and this appears to have been the way that the copper objects in the hoard at Nahal Mishmar were created.
It has also been noted that some of the objects at the site are a combination of copper and arsenic which creates arsenical bronze which is just another type of bronze where the elements added to the copper is arsenic as opposed to tin. Lost wax casting became the main way to create metal objects right up until the modern age. The process itself became a lot more involved and intricate over time and with the advancing technologies humans were able to refine this form of metalwork. However, it does appear that this type of metalworking was being used as long ago as 3500 BCE, as is evident from the aforementioned hoard of copper objects discovered in the cave of the treasure at Nahal Mishmar. The, the old, old copper, copper complex. complex. If we are to talk honestly about whether metallurgy spread or emerged independently as we did with agriculture and farming, then we need to look elsewhere in the world for clues. The best place to look for clues has to be the Americas, as the Americas are clearly detached from the rest of the world culturally due to its geographical location. We understand that the Native Americans had learned how to farm plants and animals and we believe that they learned this independently. In the east of the modern-day US state of Wisconsin, we have found axes, adzes, and a range of tools for hunting both land and sea animals created using native copper resources. Some of these tools could date back as early as 4000 BCE. While it is not impossible that humans were using copper ores before coming to the Americas, the existing evidence does not support this in any way due to the fact that human societies had established themselves in these parts of the world before land bridges were submerged underwater in a day and age where no categorical evidence of metal usage was known. It is for this reason that the safe bet is to assume that the discovery and utilisation of metals occurred independently in the Americas than elsewhere in the world. This period in the Americas is called the Archaic Period of North American History and the human societies utilising native copper ores are referred to as the Old Copper Complex. It does appear that over the course of the next 3,000 years, humans of archaic North America had developed a trade network where copper was being taken to other areas of the continent surrounding the Great Lakes. We can also see this by the time that archaic North Americans had discovered the advantages of annealing native copper. If you recall from earlier in the episode, annealing is the art of using heat to ultimately allow the metal to become more workable. Many thousands of copper artefacts have been found during this period, but one interesting anomaly is the reduction in the number of copper tools compared to copper jewellery and ornaments, 
as we reach the end of the archaic North American period at around 1000 BCE. Some experts suggest that this is an evidence of a shift from the societies living in North America into becoming more hierarchical societies. Strangely though, we cannot find much evidence of metallurgy advancing to smelting in North America, but the study of ice cores from the Andean regions of South America tell us a completely different story. Chemical studies of these ice cores involve looking for the evidence of copper smelting by the amount of byproducts of smelting, such as the chemical element cerium. But it is important for scientists to establish whether the cerium production could provide us with false evidence due to it being produced by a natural event as opposed to a human act. One particular study of an ice core extracted from the Nevado Illimani in the Bolivian Andes have led scientists to believe that copper smelting may have been taking place as early as 700 BCE purely on the basis of the amount of copper pollution detected in the ice core. This demonstrates the ability of scientific technology to search beyond the simple excavation of actual artefacts and use our gained knowledge to look for clues within the chemistry of the earth itself for answers. This is comparable to our knowledge of the switch of the earth's magnetic field by studying geologically studying magnetic rocks and also our knowledge of the earth's historical climate by studying the chemical composition of tiny fossilised animals in these ice cores. Utzi the Iceman In the year 3345 BCE, a baby boy was born in a farming community in modern-day Italy. Life was tough for the baby boy's community. As much as they did rely on the cereal crops that they were growing, it was clearly a tough life. Much as his group had heard of domesticated goats, his elders still needed to show him how to hunt using flint-tipped arrows, which could be fired using a longbow and using small woven nets to capture birds and rabbits. We'll call the boy Utsi. Utsi understood that by being a skilled hunter, not only could he catch his own meals, but that he could also manufacture his own clothing. He could use the hides of his larger captures, such as the sheepskin, to create a warm overcoat to help him survive those cold alpine winters. He knew that he could use the tendons and ligaments, the sinew of his prey, to stitch his clothing together. And he also knew that with his weaving skills, he could weave tough grasses together to create a warm lining inside his shoes, which would have been carefully made from deer skin attached to a bearskin sole. Utsi was a very capable young man, and when he left his home 
close to the modern city of Bolzano in modern-day Italy and ventured north into Alpine territories to find his future. He was able to survive his adult life quite well, but soon that inescapable enemy of all humans would begin to catch up with Utzi, the enemy being old age. Utzi was now a man in his 40s, which was an achievement in itself during this period. Life was indeed taking its toll on Utzi's body, which was not as young as it used to be. Utzi's joints were becoming stiff and painful, but he did know people who knew methods to relieve the pain. They tried to help Utzi by cutting the skin near the painful joints on his body and rubbing soot into the cuts. Such action would leave a permanent mark on Utzi's body similar to a tattoo, but this was no concern to him. All he knew that it was helping and he kept going back over and over again for the pain relief of this treatment. Nonetheless, Utzi was still struggling. His teeth had rotted away due to the intensity of the cereal grains from the bread in his diet and this caused him gum disease. But this was just part of life for everybody. Utzi had survived the winter and the year was now 3300 BCE, the year of Utzi's 45th birthday. The springtime was in full force and although the nights would still be very cold, the weather was picking up. Competition for resources was hard, so despite Utzi's aches and pains, he would still have to go out and look for resources and avoid others who would quite happily kill Utzi to get to the resources first. Utzi would eat a good meal of deer meat with bread before resting and setting out into the Alpine landscape on the modern Italy-Austria borderlands. Utzi could not drink the milk of the domesticated goats due to the lactose content, so he had to drink the dirty water which was not doing his health any favours as it was upsetting his stomach. The whipworms from the dirty water would cause stomach pains and diarrhoea. Not to mention the ticks infesting his clothing causing Utzi bacterial infections that had made him feel extremely ill on more than one occasion during the last winter. However, Utzi had to soldier on and look for resources. At some point during the day, Utzi sustained a knife wound to his hand, but we can't be too sure if this was because he was attacked or whether this was an accident. Either way, it is clear that Utzi did stop at some point to eat, and this time he ate some ibex meat, which may have been from one of the goats back at base. Utzi may have taken this along with him in his bag pack, which contained everything he needed to survive, from tools for making fire to fungi, which he likely used for medicinal purposes, alongside some berries to keep him going. Eventually, on this fateful day, Utzi ran out of luck. 
He was discovered by enemies who wanted Utsi out of the way so that they could take whatever it was that Utsi was after all for themselves. He was struck in the back by an arrow and fell into the ice where he bled to death. The remains of his body would be preserved in the ice for over 5,000 years. On the 19th of September 1991, Utsi's remains were discovered in the Utstal Alps, which is why we call him Utsi. His tooth enamel alongside palynology study, that is the study of dust and pollen grains, tells us where he grew up as a child and demonstrate his abrasive cereal grain rich diet. The artefacts discovered alongside Utsi's body such as the flint dagger, the clothing and the long bow and arrows tell us a lot about the lifestyle and the fauna and flora that Utsi lived alongside. Chemical analysis of his body tells us about his ailments and the presence of 61 tattoos near his joints suggests a method of treatment for his apparent arthritis. It also tells us about his last meals. Palynology of the most recent pollen on his body tell us what time of year he died and his fingernails tell a story of periods of illness in his last few months alive. The wounds on his body tell us how he died. All of this scientific study allow me, your humble podcast host, to construct what may not be a completely accurate story, but nonetheless a reasonable one, with all the evidence to hand. Why have I chosen now to tell Utsi's story? Well, Utsi is an example of a calcolithic man. A man who lived in the period when metallurgy had become a part of everyday life. We know this because Utsi's remains, along with everything else mentioned, were accompanied by a copper-headed axe hafted onto a U wooden handle. Thanks to particles of copper found in Utsi's hair, we have reason to believe that Utsi manufactured his copper axe himself. So Utsi was very likely a skilled, calcolithic coppersmith. Next time we will take a closer look at the megaliths that were constructed from the Neolithic period onwards and what part they played in the lives of these agricultural, sedentary, metalworking societies that we have introduced to you during the last four podcasts. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And I apologise, it's been quite a long one this week, so I'm going to wrap it up quite quickly. But thank you very much for your patience. While I've been away from the podcasting, I did post a couple of unscripted episodes just to let you know that we weren't disappearing forever. Um, and uh, this is now the the next episode, the next proper episode. So it's good to be back and it's good to be telling you some exciting stories about our past. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode.
I'm just going to mention one bit of feedback that we got um, this week from Yuki Tanaka, who made a comment on the CastBox History of the World podcast page, stating, liking it very much, a fantastic way to study history and English. Thanks a lot. Well, we pack it full of history, and I'm actually very pleased that this is helping with English study as well. Often I hear people who are not in close contact with British English speak American English and that kind of uh, terminology, phrase and accent that you associate with Americans. So it's nice to maybe strike a balance. So thank you very much for the feedback. It's much appreciated. So like I say, this week's podcast has been a long one, so I'm going to wrap up quickly. Thanks for listening. Next week, it's the Megaliths. We're going to start looking at that very exciting site, Gobekli Tepe. So we're going to find out a lot more about that and some of the crazy stuff that is associated with it. It's going to be a good one. So we'll see you next week. Thanks very much for listening. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.